The Will Cain Show podcast is presented by Eno, the Capital One Assistant. What's in your wallet? The Ryan Rossillo Show podcast. The Ryan Rossillo Show, Dan Grassa in for Ryan on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Happy Thanksgiving to one and all. Game one of our Thanksgiving triple header already underway. Just starting the second quarter, as a matter of fact, out at Ford Field, and the Vikings have a 13-0 lead over the Detroit Lions. If anything should happen, we'll head back out to Ford Field and check in with our stringer and get us a live update. As far as the other NFL concerns, before we hit the break, I mentioned the Buffalo Bills situation. And, and let's be honest, the first seven, eight weeks of the season, the Buffalo Bills, led by Sean McDermott, were really one of the feel-good stories, I think, of the sport. You all know that the Bills have not been a postseason team now for almost two decades. They have the longest postseason drought in the National Football League. When you consider the disaster that the Cleveland Browns are, okay, put this into perspective. The Cleveland Browns have made the postseason more recently than the Buffalo Bills have. That's all you need to know about where this organization is. So they bring in Sean McDermott. They bring in a new general manager. Both guys, of course, with the Carolina ties. And they start to win football games. And they're playing really good football. As I said, they were 5-2 and two at one point. They were a a half game behind the New England Patriots in the AFC East. Sean McDermott is getting plaudits. This should be the coach of the year. Then they play a Thursday night game in New York against the Jets, and they get steamrolled. You could chalk that up to, well, the Thursday night bit them again, right? The visiting team, short practice week, really unfair competitive advantage. All right, so be it. Then they come back home to play a Saints team, which historically does not play well outdoors, especially in the elements like you had that day in Buffalo. And what happened? Well, this is the new Saints. And the Saints rang up almost 300 yards on the ground on that Buffalo defense, which is supposed to be their forte. And they demolished the Bills. So now you're at 5-4. and four. And Sean McDermott, in his infinite wisdom, despite the fact that his defense got absolutely pulverized in that football game against the Saints, and even the week before against the Jets, decides, you know what, here's how we fix our defense. Let's change quarterbacks. Even though Tyrod Taylor had been playing at a fairly high level, it wasn't his fault. But Nathan Peterman is sitting there, who was a fifth-round draft choice. Tyrod Taylor was a guy who was brought in by the previous regime. No ties to Sean McDermott and company. So the coaching staff decides, you know what? Let's see what Peterman's got. Yeah, I know that we're 5-4. and four. Yeah, I know we're in the middle of a playoff race, but... We think we can thrive with Nathan Peterman. And we all saw what a calamity that was last week against the Chargers, where he threw not one, not two, not three, not four, but five interceptions and had to get the hook at halftime. To say that the decision was a disaster would be an understatement. But maybe compounding matters, and to really almost exacerbate how idiotic a move that it was from the get-go, was the fact that now the Bills, for their game this week against Kansas City, have decided, let's go back to Tyrod Taylor. See if it makes any sense to you. And I'm trying to wrap my mind around it, and I've listened to Sean McDermott, and I'm really trying to believe in what he's saying. But let's hear Sean McDermott on why he decided to go back to Tyrod Taylor. When you go through the situation and where we are and, and where we're going, I feel like it's the right thing for this team. Just like a week ago, I felt like the right thing for the team was to start Nate. I feel like the right thing for this team is to start Tyrod. Is this high school football? Is it? Or is it the NFL? Maybe you can help me figure it out. I have no idea because I, hey, silly me, I've only been watching the NFL now for what, three decades? 
I thought that if you want success, you normally roll with one quarterback. Most of the real elite good teams in the league, they got one guy and they send him out there each and every week, barring injury. There wasn't anything physically wrong with Tyrod Taylor. And when games are so precious, I mean, playoff spots are coming down to one game. Every game counts. You only get to play 16. And you're willing to throw a game away to play a rookie? Like I said, the decision to start Nate Peterman was horrific. The decision to go back to Tyrod Taylor after a half of football from Nate Peterman is doubly incompetent. So what does this do for a veteran like Tyrod Taylor? What's his relationship now like with Sean McDermott, Tyrod? The relationship is still there. Ultimately, we're here to win games. Um, and that's really what cures a lot of things. So we're both working hard to do whatever it takes to, to find a win. I don't think it's sat too well in that locker room. How do you think LaShawn McCoy and the other veterans in that room think about throwing a veteran to the bench in favor of a rookie who's really proven nothing in this league? And now their playoff hopes may have gone up in smoke, and he can add another year to that long-standing playoff drought that you have up in western New York. The Ryan Rossillo Show. Rossillo. Dan Grassa in for Ryan on this Thanksgiving Day. Happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. As far as the NBA is concerned, it's really good. I mean, we're not used to saying this in November, but the NBA has been outstanding in the early part of this season. I've said it already a couple of times here in the show that the NBA's like unofficial opening day seems to be Christmas, right? When you have the handful of games and people are able to just sit around and, you know, turn on the NBA and watch the marquee matchups. And they only put the best of the best on Christmas Day, right? The high profile teams like the Atlanta Hawks, no offense aren't getting a Christmas Day assignment. You're not going to see those guys, right? You're only going to see the heavy hitters, the superstars. But so far what we've had in the first 20 games or so of this season, when you look at some of these storylines, we're going to talk to Chris Forsberg a little bit later on in the program. He covers the Celtics for ESPN. Boston had a 16-game winning streak. And last night when they went down to Miami and lost to the Heat, a big win for Eric Spolster and company. But think about that. They start off 0-2. Right? They lose Gordon Hayward, their marquee free agent acquisition, and he's done for the season on opening night. Doesn't even make it through a full game. Through a half. And then what do they do? They roll off 16 wins in a row? Incredible. I mean, who would have saw that coming? LeBron James and the Cavaliers, who have reigned supreme in the Eastern Conference for the last three years. They seem like they're finally getting their act together now, right? They've won six in a row, battled back last night against the Brooklyn Nets. Don't play much defense, but they got LeBron, and now they look like they are starting to resemble the team, which most people would consider to be the favorites still until they're beaten in that conference. And they're not even whole yet, not even 100%. You look at a team like the New York Knicks, who have rid themselves of Phil Jackson, who made the trade to get Carmelo Anthony out of town. And think about the couple of pieces they got back from Melo, whether it's Ennis Cantor, who's averaging a double-double, bringing energy, and has become a fan favorite for that team. Doug McDermott contributing off the bench. The continued evolution of a Kristaps Porzingis. Tim Hardaway Jr., who many people ridiculed the $71 million they gave him in free agency. During the summertime, saying he wasn't worth it. Last night had a career-high performance in a come-from-behind victory over the Toronto Raptors, a team that beat them by 23 points just last Friday in Toronto. And the Knicks rolled off a 28-0 run in the third quarter of that game last night. 
Madison Square Garden is rocking again. And the Philadelphia 76ers, the process. You see what the process has become? If you believed in the process, if you trusted the process, take a good look. It's pretty special right now. Ben Simmons having as good a rookie season as we've seen in quite some time. All those teams that I just mentioned, not so much surprising the first two, but with the Knicks, the Sixers, those are playoff caliber teams now in the Eastern Conference. And that's why I thought it was important for what the Knicks did last night in beating the Raptors. Because if you look at their slate up until now, they've taken care of the teams they're supposed to beat. But whenever they had to step up in competition to against a little bit more of the established clubs, they fell short. That's why beating a Raptors team last night was a big win for the Knicks. You look over in the Western Conference, the Rockets are off and running. Chris Paul integrating himself seamlessly into James Harden's ball club. Golden State's going to be Golden State. Minnesota, we see that young talent continuing to flourish and prosper there. They look like they're going to have a say in how this thing shakes out. And Oklahoma City, which had a lot of expectations as well, they now have their own big three with Russ, with Paul George, and with Mello. Got off to a rough start. And I don't know if they've figured this thing out yet. Last night was a pretty good indication and a good start. Beating Golden State, rivalry that you know is going to be between those two clubs, and the Thunder didn't back down. Things got a little chippy. Things got a little bit heated. Russ and KD, old buddies, getting a little face-to-face time in that one last night. You know what I like about it more than anything else? i got to be honest with you. You know what I like? Isn't it great that teams don't like each other? In this NBA now? Isn't that fantastic? Not everybody is friendly. And I know it's Thanksgiving and we're preaching family and friends and togetherness and all that stuff. But isn't it great that you have rivals now in the sport? Not everybody is buddy-buddy and shaking hands and hugging during the game and laughing. No, there's animosity. Can you imagine how that's going to boil over come playoff time? Listen to what Russ had to say about it last night. Play the same way every night. Um, If it's against Kevin, if it's against... Who we play Friday? Detroit. Detroit, Reggie Jackson, Dennis Smith on Saturday. It don't matter who it is. On the court, I don't got no friends. Only friend I have is a basketball. That's it. Um, and obviously my teammates. But I go out to compete. Um, I go out to play at a high level. Like I've been saying since day one, and that's what I do. I love that. My only friend out there is the basketball. Russell Westbrook is a minimalist. He doesn't need a lot. Just the basketball. I'm good. That's all I need. I'm good. <laughs> I mean, can we sign up for seven games of Golden State and Oklahoma City, please? And what you're seeing with Oklahoma City now, it's taken them a while to figure it out, but Russell Westbrook is now remembering, hey, this is my team. I'm the reigning MVP. You need more of that. The Ryan Rosillo Show. Rosillo. In life, there are talkers and there are doers. Sometimes it's not hard to tell the difference. Mike Bloomberg has spent his life getting big things done. Starting his business out of a one-room office, Mike built a company with 20,000 employees, all with good pay and quality health care. Elected mayor in the aftermath of 9-11, Mike got to work helping rebuild a shaken city, creating nearly 500,000 new jobs and expanding health care for nearly 700,000 New Yorkers. 
Now, there's a clear choice. Do you want a debater or a doer? Someone who can fix health care, who's done it. A guy who's unafraid of tough challenges, who has a track record creating jobs, who's taken on the NRA and won. That's Mike Bloomberg, a proven leader who can unite our country and get big things done. That's who can beat Trump. That's who we need in the White House. I'm Mike Bloomberg, candidate for president, and I approve this message. Paid for by Mike Bloomberg 2020. Geico presents, oh boy, another voicemail from your roommate. Hey, I got some bad news. Someone broke into our apartment and they took your TV and your computer. But what's most upsetting is they took my water bottle. Oh wait, there it is. I was really worried for a second. Oh, they took your stereo too. The Geico Insurance Agency could help keep your personal property protected. Like if your roommate is only worried about her $2 aluminum water bottle. Visit Geico.com to see how easy it is to switch and save on renter's insurance. The Ryan Rossillo Show. Dan Grassa in for Ryan today. As far as the college football is concerned, look, I am pumped up. I don't know about you, but I am really stoked as to what we can witness here over the next couple of weeks. This is usually the weekend when we have a little bit of upheaval, and it'll set us up really nice for these conference championship games. Because after all, I think we're pretty fortunate as fans, because some of these conference title games already are almost like quarterfinal matchups for the college football playoff. And far too often, the complaint about the way the format is structured is that, you know, four teams are great, it's great that we have a playoff, but it could be better. Right? Why can't we add two more teams and go to six? Why can't we make it eight? And I hear all the concerns. I I do. And I'm with you. I believe what you're saying. You know, and I'll meet you halfway. But the one thing that I respect and the one thing that I admire about the current format is that there is an exclusivity element to it, right? It is supposed to be hard to get into that Final Four. You're not just throwing a bunch of teams. You know, it it should be difficult. It should mean something when you get there. And you could say, well, it's not that big of a deal if you expand to six or if you expand to eight. Granted. But at the end of the day, you do want the best of the best. And if you can't crack the top four, then maybe you weren't good enough. But it does leave some teams out of the cold. And for an organization like the NCAA, which is going to sit here and they're going to preach the importance of winning your conference and conference championships and having a conference championship game more than anything else, what you're doing is is you're guaranteed to leave one of your Power 5 champion clubs out in the cold when playoff time rolls around. And one thing we have not seen yet in the history of the college football playoff, all, what is it, four or five years, we have not seen a single conference get more than one representative in the college football playoff in a given year. Could this be the year? Could this be the season? For argument's sake. Okay, for argument's sake. Let's just say Alabama beats Auburn this week in the Iron Bowl. Setting up the matchup with Georgia in the SEC championship game. Let's say Georgia wins. Walk-off field goal. I mean, thrilling, captivating, great game. Georgia just snakes by Alabama. But it's Alabama's only loss of the season. Right? They're going to be 12-1. and This is a team that was the number one team in the country virtually all season. Generally regarded as the best team in the land. They're 12-1. and Is Alabama going to be out? I mean, think about that for a second. This is Alabama we're talking about. This isn't your local community college and their football team. This is mighty Alabama. And you're going to leave them out at 12-1? and 
Now, I know a lot is going to be predicated on the other dominoes that have to fall in and around the country. But think about that for a second. That's why I don't think a loss necessarily even eliminates Alabama. And you can't then leave out Georgia because Georgia would have just beaten Alabama and they'd be the SEC champion. You'd have to take them. And you look at the Miami Clemson situation. All right. Miami's sitting there at number two. That was the only flip-flop we saw in the latest rankings from the College Football Playoff Committee. Miami struggled mightily against Virginia last week. Maybe still riding high from that Notre Dame game. And I have been saying this for the last couple of weeks. I'm not necessarily 100% sure, or confident for that matter, that Miami even gets to the ACC championship game unblemished. And I had that pit game circled coming up manana. Think about that for a second, folks. That game is going to be a noon kickoff out there at Heinz Field. Weather is probably going to be a little cold, a little nasty, right? Day after Thanksgiving, 12 o'clock in the afternoon, they're probably stuffing their faces all day with turkey and the trimmings and the desserts and the pies and everything. They're undefeated, right? They don't think they can be stopped. They may think they just show up at that field and they're going to win because they already booked their place in the ACC championship game. Pitt, meantime, is treating that game like it's their de facto national championship. You don't think that they're going to come out and give Miami everything they've got? That is not going to be a layup tomorrow for the Hurricanes. That is one that you circle if you're looking at a potential upset, which can shake up this whole equation when you're talking about the college football playoff. Are we really going to bury Ohio State? They're number nine. They've got two losses. If they win the Big Ten championship, and I mean not just beat Wisconsin, but annihilate them, can we really slam the door shut on Urban Meyer and company and not getting one of these bids if they get the necessary help from some of these other clubs losing? It is Ohio State after all, right? It is Ohio State. And I think that if you're Wisconsin... Obviously, you can't afford that one slip-up, let's say, like an Alabama can. Alabama can lose their conference championship game, still get in. Wisconsin can't. And the thing that plagues Wisconsin, and maybe why they're not getting the same amount of respect that maybe they should, even though they're undefeated, is that they play in the inferior of the two divisions in the Big Ten. And I hate, hate division play in these conferences. I hate it. I admire the Big 12 and what they do. Just put everybody in one divi- in one division, one conference, and have at it. Because you don't have the equality in the two divisions. Wisconsin's schedule and the teams that they have to play are not anywhere near as daunting as those teams in the Big 10 East. So Ohio State has to play Penn State, has to play Michigan State, has to play Michigan. Wisconsin doesn't. Right? They play maybe one or two, but they don't have to run through them like they do the other teams in the less captivating Big Ten West. So Wisconsin then is evaluated a little bit unfairly. And maybe they have a record a little bit more accommodating because of the division they're in. I'll ask it this way. If Wisconsin was in the Big Ten East and they had to play all those other teams that I just mentioned, are they undefeated right now? Are they? I think the answer is no. And therein lies the problem. Ohio State has two losses, right? Penn State's got a couple of losses. Those are good football teams. Shoot, they might even be better than Wisconsin. Who knows? But they beat each other up having to play in the division. And that's a problem. So maybe their record would look a little bit better 
if they weren't in just a, an extremely difficult part of the Big Ten. The Ryan Rossillo Show. About the Giants, you know, it, it really is a tricky situation right now when you look at the franchise because from the get-go, it just has not gotten off to a good start. You know, starting even way back in the summertime with Odell Beckham and, you know, he was absent from OTAs and the controversy swirling around him and being the polarizing athlete that he is. Then he gets hurt in preseason, isn't ready to start the season, comes back, the team gets off to a slow start, offense not thriving, not functioning, pointing fingers, whose fault is it? Then Beckham goes down, Brandon Marshall goes down, on and on and on. Everybody seems to go down for the New York Giants. They're losing football games. Ben McAdoo is losing the locker room. Guys aren't returning from the bye week on time. Suspensions, punishments, embarrassing defeats to teams that don't have any wins, i.e. the San Francisco 49ers. And that's how you arrive to where the Giants are right now, at 2-8. and eight. And, you know, you speak to many a Giant fan, which... I've had the opportunity to do so, and there is legitimate concern here, despite the fact that they've won one game, and look, they're not printing Super Bowl tickets anytime soon for the New York Giants here in 2017. That's not happening. It's not what we're trying to say. But there is some concern that maybe the Giants are going to rally the troops, as they say, and maybe finish strong and put together a little bit more of a respectable wins and losses record as to maybe what it looked like they were headed before last Sunday's game. You know, they're not going to go 1 in 15 now. They might finish up 5 and 11 or 6 and 10 because it's funny how a win changes everything, right? All of a sudden there's a different interpretation of the program. There's a different interpretation of your head coach. You see some of these players coming out and saying, "Well, we believe in Ben McAdoo." We want to play hard for Ben McAdoo. Eli Manning was credited with giving a very fiery speech in the locker room before the game on Sunday. And then, of course, they go out and win the game. And you don't ever associate Eli Manning with fiery speech. I kind of find that one funny. And then you kind of raise your hand like the kid at the back of the classroom when you're unsure about something. And you say, I have a question. Why didn't Eli Manning, or any other player for that matter, give a fiery speech in support of Ben McAdoo and the beleaguered coach and the dead man walking coach that he appears to be a lot sooner than week 11 when the wheels were coming off the bus weeks before that. You know what I mean? I don't understand why just now. And I think that you can't get carried away about what a team does in the last couple of weeks of the season. It's not responsible. And I think that John Mara, as successful an organization that he's run for the better part of his life, I don't think he should be fooled into what this team does here over the last five, six weeks of the season. That would be irresponsible. You know, you equate the final month of the season in the National Football League to what you would equate the month of September in Major League Baseball, right? If a guy has been slumping all year and he goes out there and he hits 300 in September when your team is out of it, is that a fair evaluation? You know, the old saying in baseball is you don't put too much stock into what a guy does in April or September. And I think the same holds true here for the performance of a football team down the stretch in December. Giants are eliminated. Giants are done. I think you have to look more at what they did in getting off to an one in eight start more so than what they do here in the final six games. Okay, they're eliminated. They're done. They dug themselves a hole which is too steep to climb out from. That's the situation they're in. I think Ben McAdoo's bed has been made. 
I think Jerry Reese, the general manager's bet, has been made. I don't think anything they could do right now is enough for them to save their jobs. The Giants need a new direction. They need a new voice. And you know what? There might be some changes, too, on the personnel side, i.e. the quarterback. And I know that Eli Manning has been a good soldier. The guy's a borderline Hall of Famer. They're going to retire his number. They're going to put him in the ring of honor. They're going to have Eli Manning Day. But Eli Manning has been in the league now for more than a dozen years. And in five out of the last six years, they haven't made the playoffs. You keep doing the same thing over and over and over again and not getting the results you desire. That's what insanity is called. So I think all bets are off when you talk about the changes that could be in store for this football team. Agree or disagree? Love to hear from you. You could tweet at me at the 1-800-Flowers.com Twitter feed at Dan Grassa, G-R-A-C-A. Where are the Giants headed? And is Eli Manning finishing up his last five, six games as the starting signal caller for this franchise? And I believe that they're a package deal. Ben McAdoo and Jerry Reese. I'm not an advocate for firing a coach and keeping a general manager and vice versa. That just doesn't work. It does not work at all. They either both go or they both stay. And I think that Jerry Reese has been living on borrowed time for quite too long when you're talking about the New York Giants. If I'm the guy in charge, I am cleaning house after a disastrous 2017 season. The Ryan Rossillo Show. Rossillo. Now that Human Resources VP Ashley Campbell has Kronos for HR, payroll, talent, and time, she's managing her workforce like a rock star. She even has her own hype song. I'm the spark before the fire. I'm the power in the train. I have a really diverse workforce with different hours, skill sets, and pay grades. Don't stop. Don't stop. I'm the dream. You should know that. Now we're motivating and engaging the right people. Every step of the way. Kronos, HR solutions for the modern workforce and the people who support them. Learn more at Kronos.com slash HR Swagger. The Ryan Rossillo Show. Herm Edwards, the coach, our very own, joins me now. On this Turkey Day, ESPN NFL analyst on the Shell Pennzoil performance line. If we fast forward a little bit, Herm, to some of the games on Sundays, a game featuring a couple of teams that, you know, have storylines in their own right. And I'm talking about the Buffalo-Kansas City game. And we'll start with Buffalo. For the life of me, and I've been trying to get my finger on it and wrap my mind around it the last few days, and I, I just can't. Maybe you can help me figure it out. Do you have any idea what Sean McDermott is doing with this quarterback situation? Well, I, I think they were a little bit of a panic mode when they lost three in a row, uh, feeling that, you know, when they play from behind, that is not they're, they're not suited to do that. This whole offense revolves around two players, and, and, and it was really identified early in the season. Uh, McCoy, obviously, is their, is their main threat. And then Tyrod Taylor, his ability to move around, not turn the ball over. But what has happened to him in the last three outings um, they've been behind early in games, really outscored 177 to 75 or something like that in the first half. So they've had to throw the football, and they're not built to do that, especially Tyrod Taylor. 
and so they felt like, you know what, maybe this guy, Peterman, a guy we're looking at, um, can go in and play. Well, he went in and played all right, but the problem is <laughs> you put him probably against the worst team you could ask a guy to drop back and pass against. <laughs> <laughs> the Chargers, they got Bosa and Ingram. Do they think those guys weren't going to show up? <laughs> good point. So, Very good point. You know, you get yourself into a position like that, but at least the coach realizes that, you know what, I made an error. Let's move on from this. But here's their problem going forward. When you look at their schedule, they're 5-5. Five and five, And I don't know what's going to get you over there as a wild card team. Is it 9 or 10? I do know this. They play the Patriots twice. They play Kansas City. Then they play Miami. So if they lose two or three more games, they might be out of the race. I think nine gets you in in the AFC this year. I mean, we just talked about the Chargers. They're at four and six and still clearly have some life, as do a couple of those other four-win teams. So a lot of parity in that AFC. But Kansas City, who they're going to visit on Sunday, Coach, I mean, this is a team that we thought maybe was the best in the AFC midway through October. Now they've lost four out of five. Defensively, they have a lot of problems. What does Andy Reid and company do to shore up some holes? They go sign Darrell Revis, who looked like he was already had one foot in the door at the retirement home. Do you think that's going to have any sort of an impact on that defense at all? Well, I, I, it's according to how they use him, obviously. He's not the same guy he was four or five years ago, uh, but he knows the system. Bob Sutton had him up there in, uh, with the Jets. Um, can he come in and, and, and play some, some nickel for you? Can, can he do that and, and, and you know help you that way? I mean, the one thing we do know is that he has uh, – a, a lot of experience with a with a young group of secondary guys. My my issue right now with it, he hadn't played football in a year. How much how much can he play early? Because if you overwork him, he might injure himself, and that that's the problem you have. You know, he's not playing a position where you just kind of sit around and do nothing. I mean, you're talking about a cornerback position or a nickel position where it's a reaction a reaction position. You always have to react to something. Is he ready to do that? He hasn't played football in a year. The New Orleans Saints, uh, I mean, I know they pulled a rabbit out of their hat last week, but they've won eight in a row. And they really, the most impressive thing, Herm, is that they've reinvented themselves this year in 2017. They're not the team that's throwing the ball 55, 60 times a game like they used to. They are a well-balanced machine, are they not? They really are, and they've got a dominant running game. Um, And this kind of reminds you of who they were uh, when they made their Super Bowl run. Ran the ball very well, very balanced. You know, Drew Brees doesn't have the gaudy numbers, but you know he can put them up if required to. Uh, their defense is the defense. It does a nice job of taking the ball away. And they've got that home cooking working again down in that dome. You know, that this was, uh, you know, who that, who that going to stop them Saints? I can remember when they were hot, you know, you didn't want to go in there and play. And it seemed like there was some kind of magic in that dome. When it looked like they were going to lose, something would happen. We've seen this last week. All of a sudden they're down what, 15 points, not much time left, and before you know it, they end up winning that game. You're scratching your head. How do they do that? They're hot. Herm, do you believe that this Steelers team are the ones that finally can beat the Patriots in the AFC? Well, they are built to do that. I know visiting those guys uh, when we were there um, earlier in the preseason, um, they they talked about it, and it it was, you know, it was people that were in the organization that, hey, look, defensively, we feel like We've done some things in the back end where when uh, that team, they, they, they didn't mention, they, they just told me that team, and I, well, I know who that team is, when they spread us out, we can cover them. We don't have to play zone. You know, so they're much improved in the back end of that secondary. Their offense is starting to find their way. Um, we're going to see them play. 
before the playoffs start, actually. So that'll be a fun game to watch. Absolutely. They play in December. Herm, always appreciate a couple of minutes every time we get a chance to chat. Have yourself a great Thanksgiving and enjoy the rest of these games, huh? Thank you, my friend. The Ryan Rossillo Show. Welcome back. Dan Grassi here on ESPN Radio on this Thanksgiving Day 2017. Let's switch gears and turn our attention to the NBA. And there has been no team in the National Basketball Association hotter than the Boston Celtics, who saw their 16-game winning streak come to a close last night in dropping a game in Miami to the Heat. But at 16-3, and they have the best record in the sport. Let's go further into Brad Stevens' team now with our very own Chris Forsberg, who covers the Celtics for ESPN. Chris, it's Dan Grasso. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for setting aside a couple of minutes today. Dan, Thanksgiving. Thank Happy Thanksgiving to you, too. And I can't believe we're talking about the Celtics. Of How about that? Going on. Everything going on, the Celtics in November, but hey, rightfully so, they are a big story. And I guess you could say this about them, Chris, over the first 19 games of the season, they lose the first two, win 16 in a row, drop one last night. We could call them streaky, if anything else. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if, uh, I'm still trying to process the whole 16-game winning streak. I mean, you sit there after they start the Euro and two, and, and everyone's sort of, readjusting expectations for this team and you know rightfully so where, where you lose Gordon Hayward you say well what is this team really going to be able to accomplish you know everyone's ready to sort of give the east to the Cleveland Cavaliers and then Brad Stevens pretty much just sits down his team and says hey guys stop worrying about where you're going to end up where this team is going to finish in April or May or whatever you know just focus on the next game focus on the next possession and to the young team's credit they all sort of bought in and, you know, this thing just started snowballing. And, I mean, they win a couple games, and you're sitting there thinking, well, all right, maybe maybe they can be competitive. Once it got into double digits and some of those ridiculous uh, double-digit comebacks and 18 points down in Oklahoma City, twice down 17 to the Warriors, I don't know. This, this young team has shown a lot of resiliency. And now I think, you know, just like you said, it, it, the, the streaky, I think everyone's expectations went from, you know, this team season's over to uh, – well, maybe if they keep building, there's something here. And so it'll be interesting to see now how, as they settle into maybe less of a streaky team, how, how exactly uh, they move forward. And just another example of how storied a franchise we're talking about here with the Boston Celtics. They just run off 16 wins in a row, and that's only the fourth <laughs> longest winning streak in the history of the franchise. <laughs> you know, you almost feel bad, right? Like, 16 games, is, is, is especially in, in this modern NBA where, you know, every game is tough and teams are scoring tons of points. Uh, to, to put together 16 in a row, again, I, I keep sitting there and, and thinking about it. Like, you know, in recent years, the Celtics had five, seven-game winning streaks, and it, it's impressive. To get to 16 is just absurd. And they almost kept it going last night when, when you know, you they're down big again and they, they start coming back. I go back to it. That, to me, is the most impressive part is that, you know, even a lot of teams put together winning streaks, and a, a lot of them are dominant on it. You know, I think about the Warriors, oh, yeah, back further to the Bulls, but – the, the way the Celtics did it, they like grinded out every single game. I think of eight of the 16, they had to come back in the fourth quarter. It was probably the most improbable 16-game winning streak you can think of. And just like you said, they don't get a whole lot of credit for it in Boston because there's been other teams that have, have put together even better streaks. 
Yeah, and during this streak, five comebacks, too, from 13 points or more down. So it hasn't been wire-to-wire that they've been blowing out these teams. But at the end of the day, when you have no time left on the clock, you have more points than the opposition. That's all these teams care about for sure. Chris Forsberg covers the Celtics for ESPN, our guest here on ESPN Radio. And, look, so many people, I think, are responsible for this streak and the great start that this team has gotten off to. I think you got to start with the guy who's got the ball in his hands in Kyrie Irving. And this is a guy who wanted to run the show. He wanted to be in the spotlight. He didn't want to be in LeBron's shadow anymore in Cleveland. And boy, Chris, he's getting exactly that. And boy, is he performing leading this basketball team. Yeah, what I, what I really like about Kyrie is that he sort of came in with all these expectations, right? And especially when Gordon Hayward goes down, and everyone's sitting there saying, well, you know, this is what this is when you need Kyrie to step up and score 40, 50 points a night, carry your team, and, and, and be that leader that he wanted to be outside of LeBron's shadow. But he, he never really tried to do that. He, he sort of embraced Brad Stevens' philosophies on both sides of the court. I think, you know, especially the defensive end, which has been maybe the most surprising part. But even on the offensive end, it wasn't like he was just constantly putting up shots. He was trying to get his younger teammates involved. When Jason Tatum, the rookie number three pick, and Jalen Brown, second-year guy, number three pick in the 2016 draft, when those guys have had it going, Kyrie's okay with deferring to them and letting them, you know, be part of this. Uh, and I think that takes a, a certain maturity. You know, I think we forget he's still only, what, 25 years old, and even though he's six year in the league and all he's accomplished, uh, you know, he's still figuring out how to really lead this team. I do think in, in the last probably four games of the streak, you saw Al Horford started struggling a little bit offensively. Uh, Kyrie went to another level, and especially in the fourth quarter, uh, what the league calls clutch time, plus minus five points in the, in the last five minutes. His numbers are just absurd. And I, the thing that, that, that resonates for me is, like, Isaiah Thomas had maybe the, the one of the best offensive seasons in Celtics history last year. And what he did in the fourth quarter, we, we gave him that Game of Thrones-inspired nickname, King in the Fourth. Uh, you know, I don't know if we thought we'd ever see something like that again. Well, Kyrie's not putting up as many points in the fourth quarter, but it, it, it's the efficiency he's doing it with, and it's when he's doing it in that final five minutes of close games. That's been remarkable. And he's sort of solidified that notion that he's one of the most clutch players in the league. And it's been really cool to watch. I mean, I, again, you have a certain perception of a guy – when he's you know on another team, and I think everyone in Boston knew Kyrie was a great scorer and had these amazing handles and all that, but now you see it up close and uh, just the way he's able to really impact the game in the fourth quarter, uh, it's been remarkable. And certainly, it speaks volumes about uh, the the player, the Celtics. You know, obviously, here's a guy they were willing to take a risk on in that trade, and he and he's responded well. Chris Forsberg, ESPN Celtics reporter on the Shell Pennzoil performance line. You know, you mentioned the fact that even when he was in Cleveland, the playoffs, NBA Finals, this guy was a clutch performer. He was an assassin. He made big shots, made arguably the biggest shot when the Cavaliers beat the Warriors to win that championship. But if there's one thing that's been noticeable to you, Chris, and granted, you didn't watch him night in and night out when he was a member of the Cavaliers, but Cleveland Kyrie versus Boston Kyrie, could you pinpoint something in particular? Yeah, I think it's got to go to the defensive side. I don't know, maybe it, 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 I, there were certainly times, and, and I can remember reading the stories about, you know, even back to Mike Brown saying he's got it in him to defend, that he has all the tools, right, the speed and uh, the ability to, to really fluster guys when he's, when he's uh, focused and engaged defensively. But for whatever reason, his reputation was a disinterested def- defender, a guy who, you know, maybe gambled a little bit too much. I don't know, it... it, it Maybe because it's happened so quickly, it's been the, the most astounding part is that, you know, from the start of the year, he's just tried to be in the right spots. He hasn't gambled. He actually, you know, I can remember one game early in the year, he sat there lamenting the fact that he had been a bad influence on, on the younger players on the team because he had gambled for a steal when the Celtics were up big, and he didn't like that, 
you know, maybe that his teammates would start doing that if they saw him doing it. So to me, that's the most remarkable part is that he's really bought in defensively. And let's face it, like the Celtics are the number one defense in the league. It's a, a huge reason why they, they went on this streak. Uh, their offense, is, especially in the first half of games, as evident by all these deficits they've had to come back from, uh, has been awful. And it, it sort of takes that fourth quarter to, to get these procrastinators going. But uh, the defense has just been outstanding. And you look at this team, you say, well, they traded away Avery Bradley. They traded away Jay Crowder in that Irving deal. You know, that was probably their two best on-ball defenders last year. Maybe Marcus Smart, you throw in that mix too, but he's coming off the bench. And, and now they went from 12th in the league in defensive rating all the way to number one, and by a pretty large margin. You know, probably one of the best defenses right now, anyway, uh, of the last 10, 15 years in the NBA. And so uh, Kyrie's a big part of that because once he bought in, I think it was easier for everybody else to do so. And if they see that guy and they're like, well, wait, his reputation wasn't for a guy to go out there and, and impact defensively and get these get, and, and show effort. And I think a young guy see that and they want to buy in and every, it just comes, becomes a bit contagious. So they need him to continue to do that moving forward uh, if they're going to be successful. Again, and, you know, Brad Stevens has always wanted this sort of defense-first mentality to get your star player to buy in like that is big. We've heard the jokes, Chris, that eventually the Celtics are going to have to have Billy King night one evening up there at the arena because, you know, obviously that trade was so lopsided that Danny Ainge made with the Brooklyn Nets and Billy King, their GM at the time, and getting the litany of draft picks that they did, which he has turned around and gotten himself some pretty key contributors to this team and none more than a couple of youngsters in Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. It's remarkable to me the growth that Brown has had from one year to the next. And Jason Tatum, I don't know how many people, if they were honest with you, would have expected the contributor that he has been almost immediately these guys have been so so big for this basketball team i, I do like your idea whenever danny Ainge is number 44 or however they do it as an executive maybe billy king can come do the induction speech or whatever you have to you have to have he, billy there chris <laughs> it's amazing I mean, he'll never buy another meal in boston but i, I do agree it, you got to give credit to Ainge too not only did he you know sort of lay the groundwork and his whole staff there, assistant GM like Barron, and, and getting all that they did from there. I think they thought it was a good trade at the time because of the, of the aging vets, but, uh, you know, when we were down in Brooklyn a couple weeks ago, you know, I'm sitting there looking, I say, all right, Jalen Brown was the 2016 Nets pick, Jason Tatum was the 2017 Nets pick, Kyrie Irving was obtained from the 2018 Nets pick. Like, you know, their roster, I mean, just about all the way from their, their nine-man rotation has some uh, sort of uh, fall back to that Nets trade. So it's impressive how they've sort of built it around everything that came there. And just like you said, uh, you start with Brown, uh, a guy who, you know, again, they trade around Avery Bradley, gets thrown in a, as a two guard, even though he's sort of bigger. And, and you're thinking, is he going to be the quite the on-ball defender that Avery was? Well, because of his size, he's really thrived at that position and the Celtics can switch everything. Uh, he's probably been the most, uh, impressive defender so far, in part because he's had to guard so many all-star guards that have come in. Uh, you know, you think about when the Warriors came in with Steph and Clay, and you know he's really held his own. But he's also gotten switched on to guys like Durant, and uh, he's just because he's he's got that NBA-ready body, even at just 21 years old. Uh, it's been really neat to see him sort of make that leap forward. You saw a little bit in the playoffs last year, but uh, he's really stepped up and added some scoring as well on the offensive end. And Tatum, just like you said, it's it, it's. You're sitting there on draft night, and even Celtics fans were a little leery. They've been trying to get that number one pick for years, right? They, they mm -hmm. miss out on Duncan. They miss out on Durant, Noden. And now they finally get it, and, and Danny trades down. And I think everyone up here was like, oh, man, he better be right, because otherwise he's going to get a lot of grief. Well, give him credit. Uh, I think, again, in this modern NBA where you want length and versatility, uh, Tatum isn't, isn't the most athletic player. 
but you know, we've, we've made a lot of comparisons to Pierce in terms of having elite scoring talent and the ability to just sort of use your size and length defensively. And as he sort of adds muscle and, and gets bigger and, and can take on some of those more challenges, you know, he's gotten a lot of fours right now, a lot of threes, and that's a tough position to guard in the NBA, but he's, he's been able to handle it. So, you know, Danny Ainge can take a little bit of a victory lap right now. Those two kids have been really good. Uh, another key part of this, and I go back to it, like Kyrie is willing to defer to those guys. Says something about the way they've been able to impact it this early in the season. Celtics will look to start a new winning streak coming up tomorrow night at home when they welcome in the Orlando Magic. Chris Forsberg, ESPN Celtics reporter on the Shell Pennzoil Performance Line. Chris, thanks for a couple of minutes today. And again, a very happy Thanksgiving to you and yours, and we'll catch up soon. All right, thanks, Dan. Happy Thanksgiving to you guys as well. All right, thanks a lot, Chris. Dan Grassa in for Ryan Russillo on ESPN Radio. Thank you for listening to the Ryan Russillo Show podcast. You can check out the show live weekdays at 1 Eastern on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and on ESPN News. The Ryan Russillo Show podcast.